Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with host Lou Weiss and joining us, Lou, is Dr. Chris Keel. He's on with us once a month and we talk about the flagship reports and more importantly, everyone who's listening, please go to their website. We'll give that to you in a minute and get the ACES report. It's the most accurate indicator out there of what's happening in manufacturing. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Love the ACES report. It seems to be uh, performing dead on. How's it, it look nine months out? Well, it's looking a little more rugged than it did earlier in the <laughs> year. So we're beginning to see some of those recessionary signs that we knew we were coming but they kept being delayed. Um, if you remember, if you were listening to economists, God knows why you would, but last year we were predicting that the recession would start in third quarter. We got 2.6% growth. Then we thought it would start in fourth quarter. We got 2.9% growth. Then we were absolutely convinced that it would start in first quarter of this year, and we got 1.1% growth. Now we've got people saying, well, I'll bet it's the second quarter, but the latest GDP now from Atlanta says we're probably going to be closer to two. So after having missed it for four quarters in a row, and for those who can do the quick math, that's a year, um, I'm not sure that we have a clue what to expect the rest of the year. And I think I mentioned it on the last show that the World Economic Forum was trying to get consensus. They thought it would be good if we had some kind of a pithy comment from the economists. And so they surveyed over 100 of them. And what they got was 45% saying we're going to be in a recession, 45% saying, nope, it's not even going to be a downturn. And apparently 10% didn't understand the question. Um, so... <laughs> We're we're sort of left with, if you want to be optimistic, go ahead. If you want to be pessimistic, be my guest. Um, <laughs> there's, there's data to support either one. Because what we're seeing in the ACES is automotive up, aerospace up, machinery down, primary metals kind of down, um, electrical kind of fluctuating. Um, but it's it's a mixed bag. It's one of those things where you've got some sectors that are really feeling the downturn, others not feeling it much at all. And that's kind of been the story for the last year, is that we're a big economy, really go into a 100% boom or 100% bust. You just have to be in the right business at the right time. I mean, even in 2020, when everybody was suffering, I gave a talk to the Casket and Funeral Supply Association, and they were having a great year. <laughs> Is that for real? That's for real. I mean, I actually gave a talk, and they said, could you please downplay that this has been one of the better years we've had? You know, one gentleman put his arm around my shoulder and said, son, dead people are good for us. So what can you say? <laughs> So the weather in the fourth quarter is going to be what exactly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Partly cloudy with a chance of sun and rain and snow and sleet and extreme temperatures. I mean, you know, it's like 
I have often pointed out that I enjoy the quote from John Kenneth Galbraith, which says that the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. There you go. There you go. Well said. And by the way, I want to point out about the weather and the color of the sky. Yes. We in New York, we have the privilege of having a Martian sky. Yes, you do. Yes, we yes, do. A do. nice color red. Exactly. It's now the only air that you eat with a spoon. Um, so, <laughs> When I moved out to Los Angeles in 1978, that's what the air looked at like all <laughs> the time. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes. It's, I, I have been in parts of the world where that is the norm. It still is in many parts of industrial China. So they wouldn't even know anything was different. So. Oof. The interesting thing about that was I was in China on one of my trips going back uh, 10, 15 years ago, and they didn't know. I was talking to a kid. He didn't know what a blue sky was. Yeah. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. I mean, back when they had the Beijing Olympics, that was sort of a controversy because they wanted the air to look nice. So they shut down all the manufacturing and the industrial activity, and suddenly they had nice blue skies. And people in Beijing were like, if you can do this for a bunch of foreign jocks, why can't you do it for us? And that's been sort of a controversy ever since, where the population is like, we didn't realize that we could actually have air that's breathable. So can you do that again? <laughs> no. Yeah, I, no. I just thought they were using blue smoke. <laughs> yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. They were using a virtual background, just like we are. So, you know, yeah. if you look very carefully, <laughs> you know, you could see that the sky wasn't really that color. <laughs> so let's talk about the let's talk about the flagship <laughs> report first. Right. We had so much fun with Chris that it's, <laughs> this is a weekly report, and I want everyone to go to uh, is it uh, Armada hyphen Intel dot com? Do I have it? That is one? it is, and and the flagship for those who are just you know tired of an empty inbox and they just need more emails. Um, we produce it three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It is sort of a quick look at what's going on in the economy both domestic and foreign. Uh, we have like one page of domestic short stories and one page of international short stories. And then we'll have a little bit longer pieces that deal with the domestic economy, the global economy, geopolitics, supply chain, environment. And then we always have a ending story, which is who knows what. It's something that either Keith and I are thinking about and 90% of the time it's just, you know, what can I say? It's about cats. It's about getting stuck in airports. I mean, it's just it's the it's the levity to end your your read most days. But it sells for the same price as two Starbucks caramel macchiatos. So it's not terribly expensive. It's seven bucks a month. But there's a free trial. So if you go to the website, you can see it for a month and decide if it's worth your time and effort. It's a cool read. I enjoy the read. It's because Chris has got some humor that he adds to things. It makes it an easy read as well. And I need easy reads like Dick and Jane books. <laughs> he has to add 
just to add his humor to his dry wallboard topic of economics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, economics is practice, generally. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, and, and the ACES, you can find the ACES report at armada-intel.com as well. So the ACES report is looking good uh, at the moment, but nine months out or six months out, we may get some slide. Any right. idea, Chris, uh, if that's going to be deep and long or shallow and short or deep and short and shallow and long? And There you go. Um, <laughs> I am sort of in the camp of the short and shallow. Um, we don't really have the ingredients for a deep recession. And three things sort of stand out as stalling as far as a recession is concerned. Number one has been the labor market. Normally, when you get higher interest rates and you get recession, you start to get a lot of layoffs. And that's what will end up triggering a bigger recession because we're a consumer-driven economy. If people are laid off, they're not making any money. And if they're not making any money, they're not spending any. We just recently got the latest job report. Everybody thought it would be down. It wasn't. We had 339,000 new jobs. We have an unemployment rate that went up slightly but that's almost a misnomer because what happened was that people who were in the U6 category slid into the U3. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, they have six different cuts. The one that we see published is U3, and it's the simplest of the cuts because all it is are people who are formally on unemployment. But if they're in the category of discouraged worker, they're still unemployed, but they're not in the system. They're not getting unemployment. And if they're considered involuntary part-time, they have a part-time job. They prefer to have a full-time job. That gets picked up in U6. And when you start to see discouraged workers sliding into the formal system, looking for jobs, getting into the U3 category, the U6 numbers come down and the U3 numbers go up. And that's what we saw in the last iteration. So we still have a lot of employment. We still don't have a lot of layoffs. The other thing that's throwing off the estimate for recession is that corporate spending is still at record levels. It's still 75 to $80 billion. And again, this is connected to manufacturing and labor because what's taking place are companies that can't find people, and that's been chronic for 10 years, they're turning to robotics, they're turning to automation, they're turning to alternatives to human beings. And we have seen almost a doubling of the reshoring activity that we saw last year. So reshoring is actually accelerating. For the first time in 25 years, we have seen China lose its position as the number one source of imported consumer goods to the U.S. They now account for less than half. And other countries, <clears throat> Vietnam, India, South America, whatever, are now accounting for more than 50% of the imports coming into the U.S. And we're seeing a great deal of reshoring activity that is stimulating manufacturing it's stimulating construction because the fastest growing sector of construction now is manufacturing it's up 38 percent from what it was last year and it's simply accommodating reshoring and the fact that companies are bringing in technology and machines 
it's kind of ironic. These manufacturers have been able to get away with that nasty cinder block building for 40 years, unair conditioned and dirty. They bring in the robots and they're like, no, it's dirty and it's hot. We're not going to work. We just won't. There's dust everywhere. I'm not tolerating this. So they have to fix up the building and all the human employees are like, really? You made me work in this mess for 40 years and the robots don't like it? <laughs> so, Chris, what is the impact on the economy and how do they measure it? If you know the gig worker and the new entrepreneur, particularly the one operating in mom and dad's basement, who yep. want to go fly a cubicle. Yep, it's very, very difficult to measure because they're not really sure how they classify, so we don't know how to classify them. The household survey is used to determine unemployment numbers. So it's a pretty simple exercise. You go to a household saying, is there anybody working in the household? People who are doing those gig jobs frequently say no. So you look at them and say, you've been driving your car for Uber like every day. According to your profile, you have 185,000 trips. What do you mean you're not working? It's not a real job. Don't have a boss. Don't have to call anybody. If I don't feel like driving tomorrow, I don't drive. It's not a real job. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. So we don't even know how to count them. Um, and then you've got people that are quite deliberately keep you off the radar because if you don't tell anybody, you don't pay taxes on it. The I think I mentioned before too, the Dry Cleaners Association was commenting on the number of people who had taken up internet laundry. The women who had been <laughs> sent home during the pandemic to take care of their kids still had to make money. So they started doing other people's laundry in the neighborhood. And the average take home was 350 bucks a day. So now they can come back to work, get a minimum wage job, $15 an hour, make 120 bucks a day and pay taxes or keep doing other people's tidy whities and keeping it to themselves. <laughs> and then they join what they call the underground economy. They do. Um, the U.S. has never had a particularly large informal economy, but it does now. And the difference between formal and informal is just literally what the government can and does regulate versus what it can't. And most countries in the world have pretty substantial informal economies. A lot of the developing nations have much larger informal economies than formal We've always been the other way around, but we're now getting a pretty substantial off-the-books economy. It's always existed, but it's so much easier to do it now in the age of the Internet. I mean, you take the person doing somebody's laundry. If they were going to do that before, they were going to have to print up leaflets and post them in grocery stores or find people. Now they just go on their local Internet and say, I do laundry and so you're also getting, I do tree trimming, I do snow removal, I mow yards, I clean up dog poop, you know, whatever it is that they want to do. And it's simple. They just post it on the internet and there they go. Great, great way to start a business these days. Chris, we talk about on manufacturing outlook and manufacturing talk radio, the manufacturing sector, but the services sector Lou and I can't quite get a thumb on it. Is that 
90% of the economy, 80, 70, 53, but how's it doing? <laughs> yeah, and it's really somewhat challenging to deal with it because one of the the issues is how we count what people do for a living. And we've heard for years that there's not a very large percentage of people working in manufacturing now. But that's something of a misnomer because the reason we think that is that we count people by their job. So if you are working for a manufacturer, but you're not on the line working specifically in that task, you are not counted as manufacturing. 92% of the people who work for Ford Motor Company are not in manufacturing. They're in design, they're in human resources, they're in accounts receivable, they're, you know, who knows what job they do. But they've been working for Ford for 40 years. How are they not in manufacturing? If you look at where we actually work as opposed to what we do, almost a third of the population works in manufacturing but they're frequently doing a service job in manufacturing. And so you can look at services like, yes, we're 90% we're service, kind of. But if you're in design or marketing for Ford Motor Company, you're really in manufacturing because that's who you're employed by and that's what you're focused on. So it's it's a little bit misleading to to think in terms of of because even if you're in an accounting firm, for example, if you're in the practice that's dealing with manufacturing, well, you're essentially in manufacturing because you're an accountant for manufacturers. And the services sector is doing how these days? It's doing pretty well. It's doing a little better. If you look at things like the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI for service is about five or six points higher than it is for manufacturing. And the service is so diverse that it can be a little challenging to really figure out what part is doing well. The professional services are, are doing quite well in general. Lower level service jobs, probably not as well, because those are the ones that have been most affected by everything from the pandemic to inflation threats and the rest of it. So the big concern is how you differentiate service jobs. I mean, you've got a category that's going to include a high powered attorney that is making $50,000 an hour versus the Walmart clerk. You know, and it's like, well, they're both in the services. Kind of a difference, though. Yes. Uh, one of the curiosities is that I've always had is the Fed. Mm -hmm. Which Fed do you listen to? The Atlanta Fed, the New York Fed, the Texas Fed, right. the San Francisco Fed, the what? Yep. yep. The Fed has 12 different branches, and each of them has a little bit of a unique role to play. And it allows sort of a a difference of opinion because they want to debate they want to discuss they want to figure out what's going on so each of them will have a particular niche as far as the system is concerned the atlanta fed for example has gdp now which is one of these it's almost a daily assessment of where the gdp number is and they change it very frequently the kansas city fed is the one that sponsors the big jackson hole meeting every summer where all the world central bankers get together and discuss policy. The St. Louis Fed has one of the most powerful 
data search engines of of anything you can imagine. It's called the FRED. And if you go to the FRED, oh man, you can play with graphs until your eyes bleed. I mean, it's just everything you could possibly want. The New York Fed pays attention to Wall Street. Um, you've got the Chicago Fed has a tendency to be more oriented towards, believe it or not, manufacturing and agriculture. So each of these feds have have a different role to play. And they the heads of these feds rotate into the open market committee. The open market committee is the one that determines what rates are going to be. So they meet and they decide if the rates are going to go up or going to go down. You have permanent members, the board of governors, but then you always have four regional Fed presidents that serve one-year terms. That matters because you've got some regional Fed that are hawks and some are doves. Currently, for example, Loretta Mester out of the Cleveland Fed is one of the leading hawks. The Chicago Fed has Charles Evans, who's one of the leading doves. So you've got those two competing, um, com trying to convince others of their point of view. So, yes, it becomes a little confusing. For years, the Kansas City Fed had the most hawkish Fed presidents, Tom Honig and then Esther George, Honig in particular. And it used to crack me up when I would read the Fed minutes because no matter what they were talking about, it didn't matter. Tom was there going... You have to raise interest rates. You have to raise interest rates. They have to come up. And it's like, Tom, we're ordering lunch. Do you want the chicken salad or not? <laughs> yes, but you have to raise interest rates. You know, so. <laughs> well, Chris, we always appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for the levity. We can always use that. <laughs> You're so welcome. I mean, my philosophy is that if you don't laugh about this stuff, you just want to cry. Um, so <laughs> it just you have to balance it. Either that or drink heavily. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, Lou? Chris, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Your, your humor is always mostly humorous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm no threat to Ben Stein yet, but I'm working on it. You know, so. All right. <laughs> I can do without Ben Stein, but I always like George Carlin. May he rest in peace. <laughs> Me too. And we want to thank all of our listeners. Please, if you like the show, subscribe. You can find us on all the main podcast networks and probably any of the apps that you use to listen to your podcast. Check out manufacturingoutlook.com, our free monthly easing. And Chris also writes for that, a great piece in there. And thanks for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks all. See you next month. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please like and subscribe, share on social media, or leave a review. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Rumble, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us online at mfgtalkradio.com for our other episodes. We have also included links to our advertisers below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.